Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series in the book of Habakkuk today, God and the Problem of Evil, with a message entitled, Our Righteous God. So let's turn together to Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I want you to imagine Abraham of old standing on the precipice of a cliff overlooking the land south of the Dead Sea. It's beautiful, well-watered. In fact, the Bible says at that time, it looked like the Garden of the Lord. And as Abraham and God are gazing at the beauty of that site, they look at the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, I'm going to wipe all of that out. I'm going to scorch those two cities so that the place will look like the surface of the moon. And when I'm done, that place will be the lowest place on the face of the earth. And I'm going to kill everyone who lives there. And Abraham is startled, and he wonders if there's any good and righteous people living there. And then he says, and I'm reading Genesis 18, verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's quite a thing to say. Who would question the justice of God? Does God actually kill people at random, not acting within the strict bounds of justice? Shall sinful mortals who are sinful call God to justice? See, I remember years ago, a family taking their children out of Sunday school, for they were enraged at what was being taught there. Well, what was being taught? The children were learning about Noah's Ark and God saying that he was going to send a flood upon the earth. And unlike many of us who never think deeply about what we read, this non-Christian family understood it instantly. They said, we don't want our children to learn about a God who would drown the whole world in a flood. But let's think about that for a moment. Perhaps everyone listening to my voice has thought about this. If God controls all things, then what is to be said about all the injustice in this world and all the suffering? And does God actually punish human beings in his wrath? Is anger or wrath an essential attribute of God? For a great many people, especially for those in the universalist camp, the thought of an angry God is absolutely unacceptable. I mean, for them, the alternative, that is, a God who isn't all-powerful, well, that is acceptable. The idea of a God who is incapable of stopping all evil is an acceptable idea for them, as long as their God is inclusive and accepting of all. I mean, the main reason for this is because, at least so we tell ourselves, we as a society have become more inclusive, and as a result, we have become a better world. And so doesn't it make sense to think of God as the sum total of our highest ideals? But think about this. The 20th century, the last full century that we can study, was the bloodiest century in human history. This horrible century began and ended with murder in the city of Sarajevo. It saw two world wars, but it also saw more than 165 wars in which each one of those wars killed at least 6,000 people. 21 wars claimed between 6,000 and 2 million, and five of them killed more than 6 million. 5% of all deaths in the 20th century were caused by killing the amount killed was somewhere around 180 million. This century caused more killing than ever before. How's that for all of you who have the unsubstantiated hope that human beings are evolving to become more inclusive of others? I know we think of Hitler and the death camps for the Jews, and yes, that will always stand as the symbol of 20th century evil. But let's not forget the massacre of Armenians by the Turks or the 40 million who died under Mao, 
or the 20 million who died under Stalin, or the the 9 million in the Russian Revolution, or the 3 million in the Korean War, or the 2 million in Cambodia who died at the hand of Pol Pot, or the 1 million in the Iran-Iraq War. I mean, the list just goes on and on. But do you think wars are only the story of the 20th century? I mean, think again. In 1917, an influenza, a flu, infected some 500 million people across the world and resulted in the deaths of about 5% of the world population and reduced the average lifespan globally by about 12 years. Do you still think this world is a safe place, that it's gradually getting better? I mean, we could go on and on pointing out that the 21st century doesn't look any better, but the point is... The God of the Bible claims that he is sovereign over all these things. He claims that when disaster comes, he has caused it. What are we to make of that? Now, with all of this, I understand Habakkuk's problem. 2,600 years ago, a prophet named Habakkuk wanted to speak to God about his justice. He lived during the time of King Jehoiakim, who was king in Jerusalem. Jehoiakim had reversed the revival that had begun in Judah, effectively bringing an end to the worship of God in Israel. According to 2 Kings 24, verse 4, King Jehoiakim had shed much innocent blood. Jeremiah also says that he pursued policies to oppress foreigners, and he actively took advantage of the weakest members of society, such as the widows and fatherless children. He actively furthered policies that encouraged idolatry. He raised taxes that directly affected the poor. He froze the wages of the poor, allowing the wealthy to take advantage of them. When one prophet, the prophet Uriah, spoke about his injustice, Jeremiah 26 verse 20 records that Jehoiakim simply had him murdered. And when Jeremiah sent Jehoiakim a script about what God was saying to him, The king listened with ease and laughter, and then with his knife simply sliced up the script and threw it in the fire. He couldn't have cared less about the God of Abraham, and he openly mocked the righteous one. With that as a backdrop, Habakkuk the prophet entered into the council with God, and like Abraham, begins to question the justice of God. So let's start reading Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And before we apply any of this stuff, let's take a close look at what has been called Habakkuk's Lament. Now, first of all, look again at verse 2. The words, how long, are common words in the Bible. They're used some 65 times in the Old Testament. For instance, listen to David, Psalm 13, verses 1 to 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? See, I want you to see that all of those how longs are expressing anguish. The implication is that God sees that it is within his power to change things in a moment, and yet things are allowed to run on and on. And it's not just that horrible things happen. It's that they happen for so long. 
Notice also the word violence in verse 2 means in the Hebrew language an ethical wrong that results in brutality. I mean, imagine a murderer who thinks nothing of human life. Now imagine a dictator or a king who thinks the same way. He's an evil man. He has the power to get his way. And that's the idea. In the hands of men of power is the blood of millions of the innocent. And Habakkuk had notice something, which I will explain in a little while, in which certain people were wronged and then utterly brutalized. So let's look at verse 3 very closely. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So please notice that the burden of the thing is not just that evil happens. It's that Habakkuk has been made to look at it. God's making the prophet look. See, unlike so many of us who blithely go through life ignoring the cries of the suffering, and we're happy because our bills are paid and our stomachs are full and and all of our internal organs are functioning well, so many of us, because we've closed our eyes to the cries of millions, think immediately everything's fine. See, I'm reminded of a letter that I received from a woman, and this was immediately after the Twin Towers went down because of the the terrorist attacks in, in New York City. And she wrote, and I'll always remember this, she said, I don't know if I can believe in God if he allows this kind of a thing to happen. I was taken aback when I read that. Had she not noticed the cries of the millions all around her? Had she learned nothing of the sad history of this sad earth? Were her eyes and ears closed until 9-11 happened? Well, sadly, it seems so. But don't look down at her. Most people turn away from the cries of this earth and are only awakened to the problem when suffering comes to them. At the moment of our own suffering, we we suddenly wonder how these things can be. But that's just one of the differences between us and Habakkuk. God had made him look at iniquity. Or it was God's will that this man would do something that so many of us simply do not do, to pay attention to wickedness that the rest of us simply ignore. And what Habakkuk saw and what he learned can help all of us if we pay attention to understand the ways of God. It doesn't matter where you live. The secular culture around the globe has taken its hold in our communities. It's clear that as Christians, we can't isolate ourselves from the culture around us. We need to be set apart, but how can we do that? If Christians are called to do more than just condemn what is wrong, how do we do it? There's a culture that exists today that is destructive and harmful. So how can we live as an alternative to it? How can we truly live out the alternative lifestyle that God has called us to live? Well, the first step is to open the Bible and see what God's Word has to say. In Dr. Newfeld's series, An Alternative Lifestyle, Dr. John does just that by diving into the book of Philemon. And we're excited to offer the series to you on CD as our gift. To get your copy of An Alternative Lifestyle, all you need to do is visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Habakkuk complained that God had made him look at iniquity, and at least so it seemed to him. God was idly looking at the same thing and doing nothing. Now, of course, in this he was wrong. God never idly does nothing, but that's what it seemed like. Now, if you look closely at verse 3, you'll see that there are three sets of words. First, notice the words iniquity and wrong. 
These words speak of perverted justice and social oppression. It means that the laws of his country were so designed, not for justice, but to keep the rich rich and the powerful powerful. Secondly, notice the words destruction and violence. It refers to oppression of some members of society. Certain people were the target of the rich and the powerful. And finally, the words strife and contention. Now, in the Hebrew, these are legal words, meaning that there were lawsuits in abundance. More than one Bible student has reconstructed what Habakkuk is talking about. He's describing a situation where it was common for the powerful members of Jewish society to sue weaker members on trumped-up charges and where judges were corrupt and could easily be bought off. So through a lawsuit, even a frivolous one, you could rob the poor and the needy of all that they had. Now to verse 4. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. I think Habakkuk is saying that the Mosaic law was paralyzed. It's not just that Israel had laws. I mean, all countries do. Israel was the only country that had a law that came from Mount Sinai. They were to be an example to the human race. Solomon had dreamt about a day when the nations of the earth would travel to Jerusalem to inquire of God at the temple and would learn from Israel's laws. And so, what a sad state of affairs. God's intention for the human race was being trampled on. No one would travel to Jerusalem to learn about the great God of Israel because the people of Israel were trampling on the law themselves. That's why Habakkuk complained before God. Remember, he knows God is sovereign. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So if that's true, Habakkuk offers God a complaint. Indeed, as we continue to read this little book, we will see that as God answers Habakkuk's complaint, it follows with a second complaint, and then again, God's answer. And ultimately, when God answers Habakkuk, his eyes are suddenly open and begins to worship. And so today, as I seek to come to terms with Habakkuk's first complaint, please don't think that this book is only about injustice and that there are no answers. Indeed, there are answers. You see, in our day, it has become very popular to cast aspersions at God and never listen to the answers. God is not apologizing for his governance of this world. See, the real problem for so many of us is that we simply will not hear what God is doing. And because we have not seen what God is doing, all we do is continue to complain. But we are getting to God's answers. And before we do, let's make sure we understand Habakkuk's complaint. I think we can put it into one large question and then break that large question into three smaller questions. The big question is a simple one. Why doesn't God do something? Why does it seem to so many of us that he idly looks on as evil seems to have its day? Now to the three more specific questions. Here's question number one. Why doesn't God simply stop all moral and ethical wrong? I understand this question. See, you and I live in a country, for instance, where 30% of all pregnancies end in an abortion. If you conclude that an unborn child is precisely that, an unborn child, then why, God, do you allow for more than one quarter of all babies to be killed in the womb? Why would he allow the killing of babies to be put in terms of a mother's right to choose what to do with her body? Does not the child have a body as well? See, in our system in this country, no one has the right to question legally dismembering a baby even in the seventh, eighth, and ninth month. 
Furthermore, since all of this was accomplished as a result of the sexual revolution, what has followed is euthanasia and transgenderism and statism and the demeaning of family life and the loss of commitment to the common good. Have you ever wondered how it all came to this and why God didn't intervene at some point in time? Here now is the the second question. Why am I living in such a world and at such a time? See, this question is slightly different from the first one only because it's more personal. Look one more time at the beginning of verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? You know, a certain way we're forced to look upon that thing which is in the world in which we now live. Look at it this way. When God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, here's what he told him from Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. In other words, God decided when and in what social conditions Jeremiah was to be born, his nationality, and in that context, what his ministry would be. Okay, does that relate to Habakkuk? Yeah, it does, because he, like Jeremiah, is also a prophet. Okay, but, but does that relate to us? Well, consider Acts 17, 26. There the apostle Paul says, From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. I suppose what I'm saying is that if God determines from eternity where and when people shall live, that is, the social context of their lives and the experiences that arise out of that, and as we've seen, if God also, for us as believers, assigns ministries to people from, from before time, then it's obvious then, isn't it, that the time you live is the time that God has, in his infinite foreknowledge, determined for you. So Habakkuk's question is legitimate. Why do you make me see this? It's personal. It's filled with anguish. And here's the third question, which really is the sum of everything. Why do the wicked prosper? Some of you might immediately think of Psalm 73. It was, it was written by a man named Asaph, and he had come to the point in his life where he had almost shipwrecked his faith. And in his own words from verses 2 and 3, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, haven't we all been there? Why is it? That many unrighteous people seem to go on and on, and they live long lives and are untroubled by the thought of God or his demands for righteousness. I know, I know, Hitler died in midstream, but Stalin lived to be 75, and Mao to 83, and Pol Pot saw 70, and Idi Amin to 80, and Suharto of Indonesia, who probably was responsible for two million deaths, died himself at 87. Long lives are given to men who cut short the lives of millions and millions of people. Why? Why do the wicked prosper, Habakkuk asks, as he sees the poor suffering and the powerful nobles under Jehoiakim prospering and they're at ease. Now, the wonderful thing about Habakkuk is that the book doesn't end by just asking questions, but by answering them. God himself speaks to the prophet, and we're going to have to listen to the answer most carefully, and then ponder what we've heard. And that's why I'm going through this book so very slowly. I want us to both hear the questions, but I also want us to hear the answers. Perhaps you're one of those who think that the questions that I've just posed, why do the wicked prosper, and why is justice trampled in the streets, and why does it appear as if nothing is being done? I mean, perhaps you're one of those who think that simply posing those questions is enough. 
You've already made up your mind that there can be no answer to those questions, and so you shut your mind and your ears to the voice of God. And if that's you, perhaps you need to hear yourself. What if listening to the voice of God is the great moral imperative that every human being has? Or to put it another way, what if there is no greater sin than to close our ears and not listen to God or to take God lightly? And if that's true, let's ask the questions again. Why has God allowed you in your arrogance to question his justice? Why has he not cut you down years ago? Perhaps, just perhaps, you need to marvel at the mercy of God in your case. And that might just lead you to the cross where mercy is found. But having stated matters in this way, that still doesn't end the need to hear and answer why the wicked prosper. But it does put us in a place where we are morally required to hear what God will say in his answer. That's why we're studying this book. And that's why this book should be required reading for all Christians. But let's end in prayer. Heavenly Father, we've got questions, sure enough. And some of us are even bitter in our questions. But Heavenly Father, open our hearts so that when this book begins to answer those very questions that we're asking, that we might say to you, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. For we believe and know that answers come from God and that you are wholly righteous. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John, this is fascinating. A little bit overwhelming, I've got to tell you, uh, particularly when you told that story about that woman who, who really walked away from God because of what happened at 9-11. But what you're telling us is at some time we have to face evil, or how can God work in our lives the way he would want us to? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you and I, as we were talking in the break, we're talking about the fact that sometimes we're just overwhelmed. I mean, if you listen to the news media and everything that's happening in the world, and so just to survive, I mean, we sometimes have to shut off all this stuff. And I think we do. I mean, we can't become so overwhelmed by it that we can't function. But I think at the same time, it's so important for us not to close up our eyes to the cries of the needy and the poor and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, Because if we do, we'll just become self-satisfied in our own situation and that when the day of trouble comes to us, I mean, we'll act surprised as if, I mean, how could this happen? Not recognizing that this is the nature of the world in which we live. So at some point in time, we need to look. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirmed special friends and musicians Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca. 
laughagain.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. We can't wait to set sail with you.